Well, let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy that endures forever. We ask that you would fill our hearts with your spirit. Open our eyes and our ears that we might hear your word and that you would transform our lives that we might be more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Make us, Father, in this new year, salt and light to an ever-darkening and deceitful world. Help us. Save us. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace, through our Lord Jesus, the King. Amen. Well, Happy New Year again to all of you. Uh, I want to welcome you to Christ the King and to... 2017, I never thought I would be able to say that. Uh, 2017, uh, amazing new year. Um, As we begin the new year, I want to uh, uh, take us into a particular scripture that I think will help. Uh, This is not part of our series in 1 Peter. It's uh, Psalm 120, and we'll be reading it in a moment. Let me tell you a little bit about this psalm. There were a group of psalms, 120 through 134, that were written as worship uh, songs, songs of ascent or songs of the steps. Uh, and the uh, ancient uh, Hebrew people used to sing these songs on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem during the three annual feasts of each year. And uh, they sang them at different times during their journey. And the very first one, Psalm 120, is the one that sort of kicks off the rest of the Psalter of this section. Uh, the the uh, psalmist that's writing this is uh, anticipating his journey and what is prompting him to go uh, on this journey. And so we're going to uh, read the passage and then I'll explain a few things and I think it will help all of us to orient ourselves to, uh, to the new year. So uh, let's begin reading. If you have your Bible, uh, open them to Psalm 120. If you don't, there's the passage is written uh, in an insert in your bulletin. So now here... Uh, God's word, and I'll read the entire psalm. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of the Lord. There's a saying that goes like this, and all of you have either said it or you know what it means. Uh, I feel like uh, a fish out of water. And what that generally means is that there is a certain amount of discomfort uh, associated with our life at that certain moment. You may uh, go into a a room full of people that are not like you and you say, I feel like a fish out of water. Or maybe you're visiting a certain place in the country and I feel like a fish out of water. Or maybe your work environment where you work, you think, oh man, I don't fit in with any of these people. I feel like a fish out of water. And so when we say that, when we use that, that, that statement, Uh, For us, it expresses a degree of discomfort and unease. But for the fish, it's life and death to be out of water. 
And I think that a lot of us uh, as Christians, uh, we feel sometimes like fish uh, out of water. We feel like we're not in uh, our proper environment. So what we do is we strive with all of our might uh, to get around people that are like us, same color, be sure they're the same color, uh, be sure they're the same socioeconomic uh, level, uh, be sure they speak the same language, uh, let's make sure that they all belong to the same political party. Uh, let's uh, make sure that uh, uh, they have uh, basically the same look about them, the same dress. We don't want anybody with a bone in their nose. Uh, and if they have a tattoo, if it's a Christian tattoo, it's okay. But if it's any other kind of tattoo, well, that's awful. Uh, and so we go on and on making these, these uh, barriers, if you will, to getting along with other people. The church was revolutionary in that it accepted all people of all colors, of all backgrounds, of all socioeconomic and political persuasions. Jesus had on His own little group of disciples, He had everything from zealots who were, who were revolutionaries and wanted to take over the government with military force, he had everything from that to representatives of the, of the government, uh, like Matthew the tax collector, all the way to uh, uh, pacifist fishermen who didn't know what was going on and weren't sure about where they, where they fit, fit into the whole world, and everything in between. Everyone was represented. And if you carefully read the Old Testament, in fact, I don't even think you have to carefully read it. If you just look at it on its face, you will see that as the people came out of Egypt, they gathered together, they cobbled together not only the Hebrew nation, but people from every kind of background and nation that you can imagine to make that trek with them through the desert and to settle in the land of Canaan, even to the extent of taking into their tribe, if you will, Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, a Canaanite woman who was under the harem or the judgment of God. And God just forgave her and brought her right into his family without even a second thought. There were people from every kind of background. And so when we as Christians feel this tendency to be isolated and to gather in our little cloister, the church is where we are to gather in the church, but we as the church are then to take on a certain ethos a certain DNA is supposed to permeate into our uh, cellular bodies, into our spiritual lives to such an extent that when we leave here, we are able to take on the whole world, that we don't exclude anyone, people that are completely different from us and opposite from us in many ways. We are able to relate to them because we all have something similar in common. And these pilgrims that went on this journey understood that commonality. They knew what it was. And no one better than the psalmist who wrote this. And we're not sure who wrote this psalm. Uh, it doesn't have an ascription uh, attached to it. But he is, going, he is describing in Psalm 120 the beginning, if you will, of the pilgrim's path. On Christmas Eve, I told you that if you wanted to condense the whole, if you wanted to take the whole story of the Bible, Bible's a big, thick book, and if you wanted to take it and put it into a, just one little, little uh, pithy statement, you could say it was creation, chaos, and what? 
Nobody was listening. New creation. Creation, chaos, and new creation. And you see that cycle repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. Creation, chaos, and new creation. And ultimately, the the final new creation is the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth described in Revelation 21 and 22. The pilgrim's path and, and the path for all of us and what I hope to communicate to you is that your path for 2017 and 18 and 19 and so on, for however long you live, your path is going to be one of creation, chaos, and new creation. It's going to be a cycle that goes on in your life constantly. Every day. We know something's wrong. We know something's amiss. Just in our normal life. We get sick. We have disease. Our families have trouble. Uh, sometimes the kids go off the rails. Sometimes, kids, sometimes your parents go off the rails. They, they lose their minds. Work can be difficult. We know something's wrong. And we know that there's a lot of deceit. A lot of untruth. There is sin in the world. And it just seems to be like an atmosphere. And the question is, how do you make this journey? How do you make the journey and able to do it with love and joy and peace and excitement about what's ahead? Looking forward not just to the next day, but the next month and the next year. And even beyond that, some of us have to actually face death. You have to look at it right in the eye and say, you know, I know my life is terminating. I'm coming to the end. How do you do that with love and joy and excitement and peace and patience so that that your life is distinctly honoring to God in a way that glorifies Him? As we say in our catechism, we're able to enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. How do we do that? These psalms helped us. Dr. Uh, uh, Eugene Peterson says this in his commentary about the Songs of Ascent, speaking of this particular psalmist, that pain penetrates his life. The pain of where he is in Meshach and Kedar, the pain of being distant from God, penetrates his life, and through despair, it stimulates him to a new beginning. In other words, if you let it, sorrow and pain and grief and despair, even disease or setbacks in your life, any circumstance, if you will accept it and receive it as God intends it, can move you towards Him, not away from Him. And as I've told many of you over the years as your pastor, that when when tragedy strikes, the worst thing you can do, it's okay to question God. It's okay to even doubt God. It's okay. What is not okay is to turn your back and move away from Him. Because going away from Him takes you into the darkness. It takes you further into Meshach and further into Kedar, which I'll explain in a moment. Pain penetrates through despair and stimulates a new beginning. And so whatever 2016... 2016 was horrific for me personally. Many of you know, it was an awful year. Terrible. And it wasn't because of the election. Although that would contribute... (laughs) But I had very bad health. I I almost died. I literally almost died. And so I know what it is to be a young, handsome, prosperous, good-looking, and have your life cut short. (laughs) Okay, I'm joking. Come on, lighten up, you bunch of Presbyterians. Um, 
No, I mean, you, you, know, you know what it is to face a real setback and have God come in and, and you know as we turn towards Him, He catches us up in His arms of love with cords of love even as we struggle in our doubts, even as we're not sure, even as we sometimes wrestle with Him. As long as you're wrestling with Him, that's okay. Don't walk away. Don't leave. In the journey, what we want to do is three things. I'll go through them quickly. We want to recognize that we live in a culture, listen, a culture of deceit. A culture of deceit. Secondly, we're going to talk about the Lord of truth. Culture of deceit, Lord of truth. And then finally, I'm going to to talk a little bit about the man of peace that I think this psalm is describing uh, ultimately, the culture of deceased. Th- this is in verses 1 and 2. Take, take a look at them. In my distress, I called to the Lord. The, the word distress is a Hebrew word that is very broad. It can mean a lot of things. What it means is trouble. In my trouble. In fact, it's translated sometimes, depending on the context, as anxiety. In my anxiety. In my worry. It does not deny for one minute that we have worries and that we have anxieties and we have stresses and that we have troubles in our life. It admits it. It embraces the reality of our human existence that we do in fact struggle with this. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. Do you see, he turns to God. He doesn't turn away from Him. In my distress, I don't question, oh, God must not like me because I'm in distress. No, he turns to God because of his distress. I called upon the Lord and He answered me. And here's what He prays. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a lying tongue. Deliver me from this, these lies. Now, commentators uh, who have, have, have comment, had commented on this passage have said, we don't know if this particular psalmist is talking about personal libel. In other words, somebody is actually speaking badly against them and, and, and dissing them and giving them a bad reputation and all of that and saying bad things about them or trying to cause them trouble. Or if he's using this first personal pronoun, I, uh, or me, as, as a means of expressing his, his, his identification with the broader people of God. That we all live in a, in a lying culture. That people are speaking against us or saying things that, that are filling the atmosphere with untruth that we have to battle all the time. And I think it's both. I think it's a little of both because you find these authors very often doing it. They take their personal experience and then they broaden it out just like I would in a sermon. Say, you know, this happened to me, but I know it's happened to you as well. They do the same thing. And so what he's saying is, deliver me, O Lord, from this culture, if you will, of lies. This culture of lies. And we have the idea that it's so easy for us to identify. Oh, we can identify. This is a lie. That's a lie. That's the truth. This is a... And we have... You know, that's pretty arrogant. You know, there are people out there that actually are better liars than you. That was supposed to be funny. I give up. All right. Recently, I know that you all are watching the news, and uh, you know there's a lot of talk right now on the on the internet and all over the place about fake news. Have any of you heard of? Let me just make sure that all we're all together. Anybody heard of fake news? Okay, good. All right, we're back together. Okay, fake news. 
Fake news is all over the news now. What is fake news? You know, and pe- people on the right side of the political aisle are yelling at the left saying, you have fake news, and people on the left are yelling at people on the right of the fake news, and all of us in the middle are saying, we know what the difference is, but we really don't because we're the ones reading the fake news. Anyway, they interviewed Denzel Washington. Uh, you all know the, at the Academy Award winning actor, really great guy. Denzel Washington, and some of you have heard this. The reporters are asked, because fake news stories came out about him, which candidate he was supporting and all this in the election. Denzel Washington told the reporter, I saw it, the interview, it was really, really good. You can see it on YouTube. He said this to the reporter, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read the newspaper, you're misinformed. And this reporter, I think it was a young girl, she, she kind of got caught off guard because he was so blown. If you read it, if you don't read it, you're uninformed, and if you do read it, you're misinformed. And she was taken back. She says, well, what do you do? And he said, he, he asked her back. He said, what's your responsibility? Your responsibility is to tell the truth. And it really took this reporter back, and I think everybody that listened to it, because news has not become news. You all know that, right? It's become propaganda. Now, when did that start? Some of you, the minute I asked that question, you saw the name Obama come into your mind. Well, let me wake up and smell the roses. The propaganda has been going on from time immemorial. Do you know that they have uncovered tablets in Assyria written in clay that have all kinds of of news of what's going on in their day. And a lot of it is propaganda, misinformation. Some of it contains a little bit of the truth. It's the skin of the truth stuffed with a lie. And they've been able to read these tablets and they go, wow, these people were just as good as MSNBC. These people are just as good as CNN. They're just as good at lying and distorting the truth as anybody else. And it's been going on for centuries. And God's people have always been warned. You're living in a culture of lies. Be careful. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Look at it. Be able to, to, to step back from all of your prejudices and your biases and look through the lenses that I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a pair of glasses that if you put these glasses on, you will be able to discern the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, not at every minute. Sometimes we get caught up. I do. I, I'm sure you do as well. We get caught up in the, in the, in the moment, in the culture of lies. But what this psalmist is saying is, deliver me, O Lord, from these lying lips and these deceitful tongues. Deliver me. And then he... he, 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 he it's like this. Let, let me see if I can put it this way. Our culture tells us Uh, There's no such thing as absolute truth. Have any of you heard that? There's no such thing as absolute truth. Right? All truth is relative. Except for one. The truth that there's no absolute truth. You see, they're making a truth claim when the relativists tell us there's no absolute truth. They're making an absolute claim when they say there's no absolute truth. 
And so good apologists like Ravi Zacharias was, uh, was hit with this at one of his Veritas forums. And, and, and the, the young man, uh, the college student, said there's no such thing as absolute truth. And he's going on and on. Ravi listened to him. He went on for about 15 minutes. And it was, it was a compelling argument that there can't possibly any, be anything such thing as truth. And when he was through, Ravi said, are you done? And the guy said, yes, I'm done. And Ravi said, I only have one question for you. Do you lock your doors at night? And that crowd erupted in laughter. I don't know about this crowd. (laughs) Because it was obvious. Do you lock your door at night? If you do, you believe in absolute truth. You believe in it. And so even the most committed relativist looks both ways before he crosses the street. You can talk about there's no such thing as truth all day long, but when you come to the intersection, you're going to look both ways because you know there's an absolute truth. Yes? And that's what this psalmist is crying out for. Give me the ability to see the lies. And, and he prays against the lies, this culture of deceit. And look what he does in verse 1 and 2. He invokes the name of the Lord. He uses the word yod hevav that what we translate... Uh, Jehovah or Yahweh, no, we really don't know how it's pronounced. So if anybody says, I know how it's pronounced, they're lying. Okay? Nobody knows how it's pronounced. It's a tetragrammaton. We don't really know how the vowel pointing was. So it's just yod Hevav. Hey, it's it's uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, something like that. But we really don't know. And he invokes that name, the name that was unspeakable, that they wouldn't even pronounce because it was so holy, because that was the Lord they were appealing to. You see, the world, the ancient Near East, was filled with gods. All kinds of gods. They had hundreds, they had thousands, they had tens of thousands of gods. But he's invoking the one, the God of truth. And people in the ancient Near East recognized that there was a God of truth. And they had different names for him. The name the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrews gave him was yod the Lord of truth, the God of truth. He invokes the Lord and then he addresses his opponents. And what he does with this is very interesting, folks. He asks for God's judgment to come upon the lies. Think about this. Whenever you are tempted... Uh, to defend yourself, and I'm really bad about this as a pastor. I'm getting criticized all the time, not by any of you. It's always people that don't go to our church. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Gail. I mean, you know what it's like to get criticized, have somebody just hammer you, say something really, maybe even, it may even be partially true. It may not be true at all, but it may be partially true. It really doesn't matter. But the first thing we want to do is what? We want to defend ourselves. We want to show how right we are or how true we are and how wrong they are or any other situation. Pick a situation. It doesn't matter what it is. We are constantly on guard for what we believe is the truth. And what the psalmist does is absolutely magnificent. It's easy to roll over it and really not see it. But what he's asking God, he's saying, God, you judge the truth. You bring your arrows, the warrior's arrows. Your, your arrows are sharper than any arrows that I could possibly devise. Your glowing coals 
of this broom tree are more hot, are fiery. The judgment of God. Think of what would happen to us in our marriages, in our families, kids and parents. Think of what would happen if you weren't constantly trying to defend your position against the other. Now, do children need to be disciplined? Of course. But a lot of times, it's just a struggle for power. It's not really what we would call discipline. And that's a lot of what goes on in our marriages. It's just trying to carve out our territory and make our way right. It can happen in politics. It can happen in work. And sometimes, if you're the boss, and I owned my own business for 20 years, I know what it was to be the boss. And I used to tell people, I want it done this way. And they would say, well, you know, I don't think so. I want it done this way. And I would say, I'm going to give you a chance, a second chance. I want it done this way. No, I think I'll do it this way. And my third one was, you're fired. Well, you can't do that in church. You can't fire people in relationships. You don't just tell your spouse, oh, third time, you're fired. Well, some people do. But you're not, you know, that's not the idea. The idea is that you're to live in relationship where those relationships make sense. And the only way you can do that, folks, if, if, if you believe down in your gut that somebody will, at the end of the day, make all things right, that will make all the injustices of this world right. If you believe in a God of judgment, that He will settle all scores, we wouldn't be so quick to go settle the scores ourselves, right? When, when the Apostle Paul quotes the Old Testament, he says, don't Try to avenge yourself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. He's giving you the ammunition you, li- you need to live in peace with everybody around you. Even when they do the worst possible thing to you. Do you see it? Even when they do something completely unjust to you, the basis for your forgiveness must be the God who will judge. Otherwise, the, the, the pressure for vengeance and to right the wrong yourself is going to be overwhelming. And so the, the basis for forgiveness, according to this psalmist, is God's judgment. He's appealing to the God of heaven to straighten out the culture of lies. And this is the basis for what he's saying. Again, Dr. Peterson says this, God, listen, this is amazing. Once admitted to the consciousness, fills the entire horizon. You see, once you invoke the name of God, once you appeal to God to make right the wrongs, once you're looking to Him to be the one who settles the disputes in your marriage, to to bring peace into your life with your children, to help you at your work uh, with a difficult employee or with a difficult boss, whatever the case may be, If you're looking to Him, if you're appealing, bringing Him into the consciousness, He will fill, what Peterson is saying, the entire horizon. God, revealed in His creative and redemptive work, exposes all lies. You see, what He will do is actually shine the light, and this is what I think we're all afraid of, He will shine the light back into our own hearts and show us our part of the problem the part you can actually do something about, right? Have any of you ever tried to fix your spouse? I have, and that's why Madi V is so perfect. (laughs) Have any of you tried to fix your, you know, I'm going to fix my kids. You can't fix, you know, you don't fix things like that. You don't just get a wrench and a pair of pliers and a hammer and start banging away on people. 
That's not how you fix things. But once you bring God into the mix, He's going to shine the light of truth on your own heart. Find out where you're being selfish. Where are you being self-protective? Where is greed driving you? Where is the, the, the tendency to be uh, a manipulative? Where is that coming from? Where is that moving into your life? And you can actually address that. And do you know if you change that in yourself, the equation of a relationship will change. As I've, I've shared with many of you, Winston Smith, uh, who's a counselor with... Uh, uh, CCEF, I think, or CCEF, one of these counseling group, Christian counseling groups, says that, that the sum of a relationship is made up of both parts. Okay, two parts. I've shared this with many of you before. The sum of a relationship is made up of, of the two parts of the relationship. And if you change one, then the sum has to change. So, so husbands can change themselves, they can't change their wife, but if you change... The whole relationship will change. Two plus two equals four. But if you make the two a three, then what happens to the sum? Does it stay four? No, it goes to five. Three plus two is five. You see, you can change the end result by changing just one. So you don't have to give up and say, oh my, there's no hope for my kid, there's no hope for me, there's no hope for my, you know, for my husband, there's no hope for my wife, there's no hope for my job, there's no hope. Change yourself. And the psalmist is invoking God into the culture of lies and calling on Him to bring His, his light, what Peterson says, exposing the lies. The moment the word is uttered, listen, the world's towering falsehood is exposed. And very often, folks, that falsehood is in us. And if we'll address that, then other things around us will begin to change. Jesus divided the whole cosmic world into two, uh, uh, two realms. Darkness and light. Truth and lies. Children of God and children of who? The devil. You are, the, you are of your father. And, and he said this. Now listen, this is enlightening. He said this to the religious leaders. The religious, the, the best of the best. The cream of the crop. This is what he said to them. The cream of the religious crop. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Jesus went on to say, you're just like them. Wow. What an scathing indictment against the people who believe that they are the arbiters of truth. Yikes. So how do you do it? How do you embrace the pilgrim's path? Let me give you two things real quickly and, and, and make an application, then we'll go to the final part, the man of peace. To do this, you have to recognize your distance. Any distance that's in your life, you have to recognize that distance. He uses the words uh, Meshech and Kedar. Meshech was uh, the, the uh, northwestern part of the known world at that time. It was Turkey and Asia. That was really far from the Holy Land, really far from Jerusalem in their geographical mind. It's not really that far, but in his mind, that was really far. Meshech and, uh, was way up there in the northwestern part. Kedar was in the desert in the southeastern part. It was the, where the nomads lived, where the people wandered around in, in the wilderness, the desert 
Kedar was in the far southeast. Meshach was in the far northwest. And what he's saying is that here is God's presence. And here's woe to me. He, he brings a malediction on himself, a curse if you will. He brings a curse down on his own head and he says, woe to me if I dwell in these faraway lands, if I'm not close to God. Now he's talking geographically, but he's also talking about our uh, spiritual disposition, if you will, will. Where are you? And I would say at any time of any day, we can find places in our life where we're just not quite right. Where we're, we're far from God. Our heart is not close to Him. And He says, woe to me. And you have to be able to recognize, every one of us, folks, has got to be honest with him or herself. You have to be able to look into your heart and say, wow, you know, I'm really, I'm really at fault here. I am finding, I'm finding this or that or the other thing going on in my heart. There's selfishness or self-protection or I'm trying to manipulate this other person, whatever the case is. Or I'm trying to, I'm trying to get their approval so that I can control them to get this done over here. And all of that is the culture of lies. And he's wanting us to recognize where our heart is in relationship to God and His truth. And so as we begin the new year, think about that. How am I going to look inside? What the, pilgrim, what the uh, uh, Puritans used to call taking the inner look. Can you really do that? Some people have a hard time. They actually have to go to their pastor and I'll help you take the inner look. I'll be gentle. But sometimes we need somebody to help us. Sometimes it's a spouse. Sometimes it's, uh, it's someone else. But it can be anyone in your life can help you take the inner look. Or if you have the courage, you can do it yourself. Take the inner look. And then secondly, resolve to pilgrimage. In other words, he says, after he says, woe to me, he says, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. He's talking about living in this culture of lies that creates so much uh, anger. 2016 is going to go down in history as one of the most angry years ever. I don't care what side of the political aisle you are. I don't care what. Anger characterized this past year. The venom and the anger that you saw on the internet was outrageous. And it came from both sides. Some of it came from Christians, which is heartbreaking to even think of it. Too long have I had my dwelling place. Psalm 120 is the decision. It's a decision to take one way over another. I will go towards the city of God. I will make my way there. Too long have I dwelt in this world of anger and deceit and lies too long I'm making pilgrimage and this was the first song of these songs of ascent where they decide they're going to make pilgrimage and move on to the city of God Jesus said if anyone could come after me he must deny himself do you see what he's saying he doesn't say if anyone would come after me find out what's wrong out there then come after me no he says if you want to follow me Deny yourself. In other words, you come last. Everything else and everybody else comes first. That's radical. There's nothing like that in any religion anywhere on the planet Earth. 
Accept historic and authentic Christianity. Put everything else ahead of your own desires. Take selfishness and drive a stake through its vampirous heart. And put the vampire to death. Finally and ultimately, kill the selfishness. Kill it. And the next day when you wake up, get the stake out and get ready because you're going to have to kill it again the next day. Yes? And again and again. But you, if you will follow me, deny yourself. Come after me. Take up your cross. This is what he says. How do you do that? He describes it. Although he didn't really know all the details that we know, he knew what he was looking for. I am for peace. But when they speak, I am f- they are for war. That's his, the last verse, 7. I am for peace. What he says in Hebrew is he says, Ani shalom. He says this, I am peace. I am peace. But they, they want war and conflict. See, he's personalizing peace, truth, all the virtues that made the ancient people of God who they were. He is personalizing that. It's intensely personal. It's a cry from his heart for truth and peace and righteousness and justice and goodness. He's asking for access to the city of God. He's he's going to go to the gate. In in your mind's eye, imagine him coming to God's gate and the temple is there and he's got to get in and he has to give his credentials. And what his credentials are going to be is I am peace. I am for peace. Let me in. And centuries later, we find out who holds the key to that door. It is no one less than the Prince of Peace. It is no one less than the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I don't just point you in the right direction and you get there on your own. No, I become the way for you. Ani shalom. I am peace. I am your peace. I am what makes peace between you and God. How did Jesus do that for us? How did He take us from 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 the chaos and the culture of lies, how does He take you and I from that world of chaos and the culture of lies and move us into the city of God, into the presence of God, where He is the peace, the the, the one who makes peace for us and becomes our peace. He becomes an innocent victim. Of what? Lies. They found nothing against Him and yet they still condemned him so if anyone ever comes into your life and accuses you of lies you can very easily say that that cannot hurt me because the one who was the truth suffered the vagaries of these lies for me so that I could respond in love and truth he takes the punishment the warriors sharp arrows the the coals from the boom tree they hit him not you not me That is the essence of Christianity. There's nothing deeper in Christianity than this, that He took the warrior's arrows, that He took the burning coals for us and as us so that we could stand before God in peace. God's wrath, God's judgment that was due a culture of lying and those who adhere to those lies like us passes over us and goes into Him. 
on the cross, he loses peace. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes into a time of distress, of anguish. John Calvin said, on the cross, Jesus descended into hell. That is what we mean when we say the the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell. It was his time hanging on the cross, suffering. And then he's put into the grave, into the darkness So that we, you and I, those of us who will put our trust in Him, will never see a day in the grave. Our bodies will go in the grave, yes. But us, we will be preserved in the city of peace with the Prince of Peace who has made peace for us. The pilgrim's way is how we should start our year. The only resolution I hope you'll make and one that you can keep will be trusting Jesus Christ with every minute of your life. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we love You and thank You for Your kindness and Your mercy that endures forever. We know that our Savior Jesus Christ was the man of peace. Anish Shalom. I am peace. He made peace with God for us. He took our punishment and our sin on the cross for us. He paved the way for us prepared a way for us that we might have a place in the kingdom of God with you, a room lavish and rich. Father, help us to live in peace with those around us, people of every color and tribe and nation, even those that perhaps do injustice to us. Help us to be redeeming salt and light in their lives. Let us take the blows, Father, joyfully suffering for our Savior, joyfully bringing redemption to our poor and dark world, steeped in lies. Help us, we pray, to be those people. In Jesus' name, amen.